if you would, stand with me as we read God's Word together. Remember, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke are there in Philippi. Last week, we saw them share the gospel with Lydia and her response and her house's response to faith. And now we come to verse 16. Luke writes, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to to beat them with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You may be seated, may God courage and strengthen us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning as as we look at your word, uh, we are are mindful of of your grace to us in in giving us this divine revelation. We recognize that our, our struggle in sharing the gospel is not just against uh, the, the world, it's not just against our flesh as we sometimes recoil from the sacrifices you call us to make in the the proclamation of your gospel, but we also are in a a battle against spiritual forces. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to overcome these, not for our own glory, but but for the name of of you, for for your name, for the name of your son, Jesus. And we we pray also uh, this morning for uh, those who are our, our earthly leaders, we think of, of our community leaders, we, we think of the, the people here in central Illinois that you've given uh, the authority over us, we, we think of a broader state and, and federal leaders, and we recognize that, that they also are engaged in a, a spiritual battle, whether they, they know it or not. And we pray that as we engage both with our, our leaders and with the, the spiritual world. We recognize where our ultimate authority is, that it's, it's with you, and we pray that you would be kind to our leaders. We pray that you'd be kind to us as we engage in the proclamation of the gospel for the glory of your name. We pray that you would help our hearts to, to grasp the words that you have written to us this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Scripture is very clear regarding the the nature of the spiritual struggle that you and I are engaged in. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, "We, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, So Paul lets us know that 
the struggle that you and I are, are fighting is a, a spiritual battle. You and I are engaged in a struggle with, with the demonic realm, with the spiritual forces of this world. And it, it's a struggle that despite Paul's warnings, sometimes we're not very mindful of. And in fact, when we are mindful of it, we're, we're very confident about our ability to engage and, and wage this war in our own strength, which is incredibly foolish of us. As I was thinking about the folly of, of trying to, to fight this, the spiritual battles that we're called to fight on our own, I was reminded of a of survey that came out a few months ago, and maybe, maybe some of you saw this, this survey as well. It was a survey where they asked Americans how confident they were about their ability to fight different animals unarmed. And, you know, how confident are you could, you could defeat this animal uh, without any weapons? And uh, may, maybe you saw that, that survey. Maybe you were drawn to it the same way I was, found it kind of interesting. Um, I was drawn to it for a couple reasons, several reasons. One, just the, the sheer hubris of some people, the, the sheer pride that some people, I think 8% of people thought they could defeat a, an elephant. Um, eight. <laughs> Right. I mean, 8% of people also thought, probably the same 8%, thought they could defeat a lion unarmed. And I'm just thinking, how? Like, what's the strategy for defeating an elephant? What's, what's step one in your battle against this elephant unarmed, right? It was also interesting, the survey was also interesting to me because of the difference between men and women. Guess who was more confident <laughs> that they could defeat animals. I, I think 8% of women thought they could take on a king cobra, 21% of men. Uh, the, the widest difference was when it came to geese. Uh, 51% of women thought they could defeat a goose and 71% of men. And, and maybe it's just my manliness, but I, I think we could take a goose, people. Uh, it, it was also Kind of, I think it was also an interesting survey because of sometimes the sheer cowardice of some people. So of, of all Americans surveyed in the survey, 73% thought they could defeat a rat, which means one out of four people surveyed think it would be, if it came between them and a rat, the rat would win. And maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's where some of you are this morning too. You're like, yeah, I, I would lose. Um, it's funny, right? It's funny. Just, again, thinking about uh, 8% of people thinking they could defeat a lion. I'm not saying no one could, but I don't know about almost one out of 10 of us could defeat a lion. But I was thinking about that because how, how does Scripture describe our, our spiritual enemy, our ultimate spiritual enemy in, in Satan? What is he? He's a lion. He's like, he's like a lion seeking to devour, to destroy. And it's incredible folly to think that we could engage in this war, in this battle, on our own. The point I'm making is that we have a, a, a great difficulty in assessing the danger that certain things represent to us. I was once talking with a, a man, and he was talking about his, his fear of the, the demonic realm. He said, you know, Daniel, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm in Christ, and I know that, that God can, can, can protect me, because I'm, I'm really scared about the possibility that someday I may, I may face the demonic realm. I may be influenced by the demonic realm. It may attack me, and, and that just really scares me. And I said, well, two things. One, it's good to, to be cautious of that realm, but, but it's not going to happen someday. You're engaged in that struggle right now. 
Today, we are engaged in a struggle with the demonic realm. If you think the demonic realm is something out there, distant, far away from you, that's, that's not the right way to think about it. The demonic realm is, is, is ever-present. There's, there's a, a constant spiritual battle, and the demonic realm isn't going to someday in some ways influence the culture in which you and I live. It's, it's currently doing that. We're, we're currently living in a culture influenced by spiritual forces that are contrary to God and his glory. And in this text that we're looking at this morning, we, we see the gospel entering a dark realm. We see it entering a realm that's been steeped in demonic oppression and darkness. And as the gospel enters into that area, that the enemy pushes back. And my goal for us this morning is, is to look at this text. And as, as we look at this text, for us to understand, okay, we need to prepare ourselves and recognize the danger of spiritual opposition and learn the biblical ways to respond to this spiritual opposition. Here's kind of the main idea that I want us to grasp together this morning as we think about Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke entering into this realm and seeing the demonic opposition. I want us to to realize this. Whatever opposition we face from our enemy, and we're thinking here about our, our spiritual enemy, whatever opposition it is, we can proclaim victory in the name of Jesus Christ. The victory that you and I proclaim is not a, a victory that comes within, our, within ourselves. We don't wrestle this enemy with our, with our bare hands. We, we are in Christ, and in Christ we proclaim the victory that Christ has already achieved. Remember what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You and I, dead in sin, this was not a victory you and I could achieve in our own lives, much less in the world out there. God achieved that victory. He forgave us our sins by canceling, this is verse 14 of Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He, he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This victory that we achieve is not our own. It's a victory that's found in and only in Christ. It's the victory of our Savior. It's an authoritative victory. It's a decisive victory. It's a a victory that we proclaim as we go into dark places and proclaim the gospel message. And what I want us to do as we look at this text is I want us to look at three tactics that our enemy uses in opposing us and understand how the gospel helps us respond rightly to these tactics that the enemy employs to counter the gospel message. Here's the first tactic that I want us to see. Tactic number one. Number one. The enemy confuses the gospel, the gospel's message. The tactic that the enemy uses first that we see in this text is he, he confuses the gospel, the gospel's message. Look at the text, verse 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, now, now remember where they are. This is Paul and Luke is with him, uh, Timothy is with him, Silas is with him, and they're in Philippi, they're in Macedonia, and they are going to that place of prayer that they met Lydia last week and those, those women who were there. They're gathering for a time of, of prayer and worship. So they're on their way there. And remember this, this town, Philippi, this, the city of Philippi, is, is a place that's a dark spiritual place. Think about a couple things. First of all, think about the wealth of this city. This is a wealthy city. They are 
they are uh, accustomed to lots of material things, and in their material wealth, there is a lack of recognition of their need for the gospel. This city is also a city of think about worship. It's a city that's worshiping many gods. They're, they're polytheists. There are many gods that they acknowledge as gods, and so there's, there's a, also a lack of witness here to the one true God. So this is the area that Paul and Silas and their companions have entered into to proclaim the gospel. It's a wealthy area. It's an area where many gods are worshipped, and it's a god where the, the gospel witness has not arrived yet. Even the, even the testimony to the one true God through the Jewish faith has not made a, a deep impression in this region. And so as Paul and Silas proclaim this gospel message in this region, and they, they seek to to expose the, the darkness of this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that world, the spiritual forces are going to push back. And that begins to happen in this text. Look what happens. It says, As they're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. That phrase, spirit of divination, literally means a Pythonian spirit. That phrase has its origin in, in Greek myth. There is a Greek myth that said that the god Apollo had uh, defeated a snake at the Oracle of Delphi, and now whenever the, the god gave the uh, ability to people to make prophecies, they had this, this Pythonian spirit. And so that's what's happening here. This, this girl has this demonic presence, this demonic being that, that allows her to, to give these utterances that aren't from, from herself. The word here that's used to de describe what she's doing is it's soothsaying. It's, it's predicting the future, and there's, there's this demonic power that's uttering things through her. Look what else the text tells us. It says that as she's engaged in this activity, it says that she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And so what would happen is people would come to her owners, they would give them money, and they would then have this opportunity to, to, to be in the presence of this young woman, and she would, she would say things, she'd utter things through this demonic being. And she'd, she'd say things about their future. And they might ask questions about how successful they were going to be in some sort of business venture, or they might ask questions about a relationship or what the weather was going to be like coming up. Or They'd ask questions, they'd want to know the future, they'd come to this this girl, and through the, the demonic influence on this poor woman's life, she would be able to, to say things. Now, a demon can't predict the future, but a demon might have some, some pretty good ideas about what might take place in the future, and demons certainly know how to appeal to the flesh. Sometimes when we, sometimes when we talk about the, the, the opposition we face. Sometimes we talk about our flesh. Sometimes we talk about demon, spiritual forces. And, and sometimes people go, well, I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's a spiritual force or I don't know if it's a demon. I don't know if it's my, my flesh. And in reality, the demonic world and our flesh aren't opposed to one another. They're, they work in cooperation with, with one another. Both our flesh and the demonic world don't want to see God glorified. And so they're, they're very happy to work in conjunction with one another. Anyway, what's happening here is that this this uh, young woman is, is bringing in a lot of money to her masters through these demonic utterances. And then look what happens next. This, this part of Acts has always been very confusing to me. I remember being a young kid being very confused about what's going on here. What happens in verse 17? 
it says that she followed Paul and the rest of his group, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now, as I read that, there's maybe some things that are kind of confusing here, right? First of all, why is she saying something that's true? Why would a, a demonic being be proclaiming truths about Paul and his companions who are proclaiming the gospel? And then the other thing that was confusing to me is, why would Paul be annoyed at that? I mean, that sounds like a good thing for someone to be saying. Well, we'll think about what's happening here. This young woman has been here in Philippi, and she has been proclaiming false gospels, false truths. She's polytheistic. She worships many gods, the people to whom she is giving these prophecies, worship many gods as well. And what she's doing is she's going around and she's, she's, as she's accompanying Paul and Silas as they're proclaiming the gospel, and she's saying, hey, you all need to listen to them. You all need to listen to them. They're proclaiming to you a way of salvation through the, the Most High God. And, and so what is she doing? She's essentially saying, hey, look, I'm with them, or even better, they're with me. So they're kind of underneath my ministry, and so you need to, to listen to them because the thing that they're saying is true. So she's essentially saying what I proclaim and what they proclaim is the same message. She's, she's making them proclaim a message of polytheism or make people think that they're proclaiming a message of polytheism. So I have my message. They have their message about this God, this God, my gods. They all go together, and so go ahead and listen to them. And, and Paul's annoyance isn't just that she's this, this loud, troublesome voice. His annoyance is that she is undermining the gospel message. If people think that Jesus is just one more God to put on the, the polytheistic shelf, the gospel message has been robbed of its power. And so the demonic realm is fine with you thinking that Jesus is God if you just think that Jesus is one of many gods instead of recognizing his utter uniqueness. And so Paul turns, doesn't he? And notice he addresses the spirit, not the girl. The girl is not the enemy. He's, she does this for many days. He's greatly annoyed. He turns and he says, To the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly, the demonic being is removed. The power of Jesus over this demonic realm is demonstrated to be absolute and immediate. What's, what's the strategy? What's the tactic of the enemy here? The strategy is confuse the gospel's message. And so the question that I have for you this morning is, how is that tactic used today? Is the demonic realm something that just existed in the first century and, and now we're in the enlightened 21st century and the demonic world doesn't seek to confuse the gospel's message anymore? No, of course, we know that's not true. 
I would encourage you, again, think about Ephesians chapter 6 that we looked at earlier. We, we know that we wrestle not against just flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. 1 Peter 5 that I alluded to earlier. Be sober-minded, Peter tells us. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The demonic realm is still a real present danger to us today. And one of the greatest successes that our enemy has achieved is in convincing us that the material world is all that there is. And so also, let me remind you of this, that the demonic realm is not just real, not just active in its work, but actively at work in our culture by trying to confuse people regarding the truth of the gospel message. If people in our culture, as we proclaim the gospel and, and the enemy pushes back, if the enemy can convince people in our, our culture that Jesus is just one more God among many gods whom you can worship, the enemy has achieved success. We are also in our culture, a polytheistic culture. We may not call the gods we worship gods, but we worship many gods and many idols. And people are deceived. They believe many lies influenced not only by our flesh, but by the demonic realm, they, they believe many lies about God and many lies about themselves. The enemy has achieved success in, in deception. We live in a deceived culture. Now maybe you say, yeah, I, I agree with you, Daniel. I, I agree with you that many in our, our culture are deceived. In fact, I can, I can think of some examples of, of lies that people believe. I, I know this one person who believes this lie about this, this area of, of sin, maybe sexual sin. Or I know someone else who believes this, this lie about politics. Or I, I know someone else who believes this lie about some relationship. And so you can think of some specific examples of lies that people in our culture believe. And you say, yeah, I agree with you, Daniel. We live in a deceived culture. And, and, and those things may be true. But I'm, I'm going even deeper than that. When, when I say that our culture has been deceived by the demonic realm, I mean something even more deep and profound than just individual lies about some political candidate or some, some specific sin. There, there's a deeper sin, a deeper lie that the enemy has told our culture and that each of us struggle with being deceived by. And that lie is kind of a two-pronged lie. One prong of the lie is that Jesus is not truly God and Lord. And, and the other prong of the lie is that, that we are. You see, all of us struggle with that deception. We struggle to understand the absoluteness of, of Jesus' lordship in, in all areas of our lives. And so it's not just one person over here who's confused about politics and deceived about some specific social issue. We're talking about a deeper, a, a deeper, more profound lie that all of us struggle with to believe that Jesus is truly our Lord and Master and what he says in all areas of life goes. And even more profound is this, this lie that we believe that we are God and that the, the universe and our, our relationship should all be centered around us and that people should, should look to us to, to see what's right to do and, and the things that are good for me or good for them. There's this other lie that we are at the center of the universe, that we're the Lord and master of reality. And so the enemy is more than happy for us to go around and say, Jesus, Jesus is Lord, if what we mean by that is Jesus is Lord according to me. 
The tactic here is to rob the gospel of its power by making Jesus a false god, to sow confusion. I was just rereading the, the Chronicles of Narnia recently and was reading the last book, the, the Last Battle, and I think most people would, who read the Chronicles of Narnia would say that's maybe their least favorite. There's a lot of sad things that happen in the Last Battle. But there's some, some very profound pictures that, that come through, metaphors that come through in that, that story as well. If you know the story, you know that there's this, this Aslan character, this, this lion who is to kind of represent Jesus and to, to be a picture of, of what Christ is like. And there's this, there's this scene in the story where there's a, a donkey that, that puts on a lion's mane, kind of a lion's skin, and is going around being proclaimed as the true lion by, a, by his friend the ape. And this kind of describes the beginning when the ape puts this lion's skin on the donkey. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, the skin was heavy for the ape to lift, but in the end, with a lot of pulling and pushing and puffing and blowing, the ape got the lion's skin onto the donkey. He tied it underneath the donkey's body, and he, he tied the legs to, to the donkey's legs and the tail to the donkey's tail, and a, a good deal of the donkey's gray nose and face could be seen through the open mouth of the lion's head. Listen to what Lewis writes. No one who had ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment. But if someone who had never seen a lion looked at the donkey in his lion skin, he just might mistake him for a lion if he didn't come too close. And if the light was not too good, and if the donkey didn't lay out a bray and didn't make any noise with his hooves. In other words, you can fool someone into believing that a donkey is a lion if they've never seen a lion. Listen to what Scripture tells us about our Lord. Because I would tell this to you, brothers and sisters, I believe that the, the church is in significant danger from hearing False demonic voices in our culture proclaim, here are the servants of the Most High God. Demonic voices will be perfectly happy proclaiming, look, those are, the, those are the voices of the Most High God if you and I aren't proclaiming the true God. If they can convince people that the God that we proclaim is the same Jesus that everybody else worships as well. But listen to what Scripture tells us about our Jesus, our Lord, our Lion, the best way to recognize a false Christ is to meditate on the true Christ. Our Christ is holy. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2. Our Christ is Lord and God. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9. Our God is the God in whom we are, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My God is a God who is perfect, who is holy, and died in my place. My God is, my Christ is the one true mediator between God and man. There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. He's creator, he's risen, he's gentle. The more you look at the world, the more your Christ will look like the world. 
The more you look to Christ, the more shabby and pathetic the gods of this world will appear. Real quickly, a question someone's going to ask me as they look at this, this part of the story. Should we command spirits to come out of people? As we think about engaging the demonic realm, are we called to, to command spirits to come out of people like Paul does here? It was interesting, as we go into the epistles, as we go into the, the sections of Scripture that are, direct, that are addressed to the church, there's never any command for us to, to do that. We don't see any sort of specific instruction to do it. It seems like here in this, this time of special revelation, the apostles and, and Jesus, the, the people who are laying the foundation of the church do this as the demonic realm oppresses them. But now, what have you and I been called to do? We've been called to proclaim Christ. We've been called to proclaim the gospel. We've been called to call others to submit to Christ as Lord. And I think that's the way that we encounter the demonic realm. Here's a second tactic the enemy uses that I want us to think about. The second thing that the enemy encourages us to do through demonic deception is to reject the gospel's kingdom. So reject the gospel's message of the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ, and then also reject the gospel's kingdom that only comes about through submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what the text continues to tell us in verse 19. It says, her owners, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Now, it's interesting. That there's a word that's been used twice in verse 18 to describe be, leaving someone. And so Paul tells the spirit to leave the girl. And then the, the text tells us that once the, the spirit left the girl, and now that same word is used here in verse 19. Their, their hope of gain had, had left, it had gone. And so I, I think that Luke is cluing us into here, that we're, we're still talking about a, a spiritual problem. This is still in the, the realm of, of spiritual struggle, even though it deals with physical things, money. Their own, her owners, their concern is not for the welfare of this poor young woman, but they're concerned that their, their money's gone. She had brought in a lot of money, and, and now that, that money, no longer was she going to be able to do what she was able to do before, and so they don't rejoice that she's, that she's healed, that she now has this, this freedom. They don't care about her poor, about this poor oppressed young woman. All they care about is her financial cost that the gospel message has expended against them. And so what happens? It says that they, they, they drag them, they lay hands on them, and they, they drag them to the marketplace, and they set them before the rulers, and they bring them before the magistrates, and they, and they give three accusations here, don't they? They say, first of all, that the first accusation is that they're, they're Jewish. The second accusation is that they're, they're disturbing the peace of the city. They're throwing the city into the uproar. And then the, the third accusation that we see in the text is they, they advocate customs that aren't lawful, for us as, as Roman citizens to accept. They're, they're trying to proclaim a, a message that if we were to accept it would go against who we are as Roman citizens. Now, how accurate is that accusation? It's interesting. In one sense, in one sense, they recognize what many Christians sadly don't recognize. They recognize that the 
the outworking of this gospel message is, is going to be contrary to the kingdom that, that they're loyal to. Now, Paul, later on in the chapter, and we'll talk about this, Lord willing, next week, Paul is going to say, look, we're, we're in line with Roman law. We are not contradicting Roman law. We are Roman citizens, and he's going to use his status as a Roman citizen to protect the, the honor of the gospel message in this city as the, the gospel begins to take root. But in some ways, again, these men rightly recognize that the lordship of Jesus Christ is absolute. As they bring Paul and Silas by force before the rulers and they make these accusations, they're, they're right in recognizing that this message is a message that, that, that takes no prisoners. The lordship of Jesus Christ is absolute. Now, how does this tactic that the enemy uses to, to encourage people to reject God's call to submit to his kingdom, how does that play out in our culture? A couple thoughts here. One, the enemy, our spiritual enemy, this is hard for some of us to grasp, our enemy does not care what kingdom you pledge your absolute allegiance to as long as it's not Christ's kingdom. Our, king, our, our enemy doesn't care if you pledge allegiance to the social club. It doesn't matter what political party you pledge your allegiance to. It doesn't matter what, what sin you decide to, to give your heart to. As long, as long as your allegiance is absolute, as long as you say, okay, this will be my highest kingdom, the, the enemy doesn't care which kingdom it is as long as it's not Christ's kingdom. Christ is attractive as long as he doesn't meddle. Remember what the young ruler says to Jesus as he approaches him for the first time? Remember what he calls him? He says, good teacher. You're, you're a great teacher. And then how does he leave Jesus? He leaves Jesus sad because the things this good teacher told him were not the things he desired to hear. And as he comes to this decision between which kingdom he's going to choose, he recognizes that he can't follow this, this king anymore, this good teacher. What the teacher told him wasn't as good as he thought it was going to be if it was going to allow him to preserve his kingdom. There are demonic forces. There are demonic forces that embolden and inform the kingdoms of this earth. And you and I are tempted to swear our allegiance to them. We often, as we think about history, we can often be very critical of, of people who lived before us. We hear about the atrocities that, that some people were a part of in, in our nation's past, or we, we think about, we're, we're talking with our, our daughter this, this past week about the Assyrian Empire and the, the terrible things that the, those people did. As we look back on kingdoms of this earth with a, with a critical eye, there's, there's a sense of humility you and I need to have as well because apart from God's, this is very important for us to grasp, apart from God's divine grace in our lives, either through common grace or through his special revelation, apart from that interference by God in our lives, you and I, if we had lived at that time, would have been wholeheartedly sworn out to those kingdoms as well. 
apart from God's divine grace in our lives, either through special revelation or his common grace, if we had lived in certain kingdoms and we think about the atrocities that, that people who are part of those cultures did, you and I would have been right there with them doing the exact same thing. And if you think that's not true, you have a wrong understanding of our sin nature and our heart's temptation to love this world and to swear allegiance to false kingdoms. The Jews and Romans, not friends, right? Some people swore their allegiance to the Jews. Some people swore their allegiance to the Roman Empire. You know what they both had in common? Didn't like Christianity in the first century, right? Not a fan of the Christian message. Why? Because the gospel proclaims there is one king and one king only, and all their kingdoms are going to be destroyed and consumed under this one kingdom. You know, there's this phrase, uh, you know, watch the world burn or let the world burn. It's, it's a phrase that's been around for hundreds of years. It came into greater prominence in the last 10 years or so with the movie um, The Dark Knight. And there's that, that famous scene where one of the characters is, is talking, and he's talking about this, this, this other character, this, this villain, and he's trying to explain his motives. Why is he doing the terrible things that he's doing? And the, this character says this. He says, some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. They can't be bought. They can't be bullied. They can't be reasoned or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Brothers and sisters, that's a message that you and I as Christians need to grasp and lay hold of. Our enemy does not care what kingdom you swear allegiance to. Our enemy just wants to watch the world burn. I read a great article this past week, and, and I think Christians need to grasp this. We don't. A great article by Carl Truman in the magazine First Things. And he's talking about where we are as Christians right now in our culture. And, and if you're like me, and I, I know many of you are like me, I don't mean that as an insult, um, there's, a sense of, there's a sense of discouragement as we think about our culture, right? As we think about where we are as a culture. We are not in a culture that loves the gospel. And Carl Truman is writing, he says, there's, there's kind of two temptations we can face. Two temptations we can face. He, he writes, When Christianity feels its place in society coming under threat, as it finds itself pushed to the margins, two temptations emerge. And so here are the two temptations. The first is an angry sense of entitlement. An impulse to denounce the entire world and withdraw into cultural isolation. He says, so, so one tendency that we can have is just to become very angry at our culture. And... Listen carefully to what he says, because I'm going to get emails from you if you're not listening carefully here. He says, arguably, arguably, we see something of the same thing in today's evangelical support for Donald Trump. Though in the past, uh, it would populism continuing for America's future rather than retreating from his present. He's not saying don't vote for, for Donald Trump. He's saying, or whatever candidate, he's saying the motivation, the motivation to, to, to be angry and, and to be drawn to one candidate, the motivation can be can be driven by this, by this, this anger. I'm, I'm angry at the world. And he says, but there's another, there's another temptation that exists for Christians. And it's a desire, instead of being angry at the world, a desire to be embraced by, by, by this world and its kingdom. He, he writes this. 
He says the second tendency is more subtle and more seductive. While appearing to be valiant for the truth, it conforms Christianity to the spirit of the age. And so this is by, he's talking about uh, maybe like those of us who desire to be welcomed into polite circles. And our belief is, man, if I just present the gospel in the right way, this, the kingdoms of this world will welcome me in. And Carl Truman has these very strong words, that kind of a wake-up call that I think he's exactly right. He says, listen, today's cultured despisers of Christianity do not find its teachings to be intellectually implausible. In other words, the problem they have with Christianity isn't that they just intellectually don't understand it. Listen to what he says. Their problem is this. They regard the teachings of Christianity as morally reprehensible. That's where we are in our culture today. You think about the recent conflict with with Netflix. You scroll through Netflix and you're going to see literally thousands of movies that are opposed to a Christian worldview and Christian biblical teachings. But the the controversy this last week or weeks has been by a a special by by the comedian Dave Chappelle that's that's being labeled as, as harmful speech because it has the audacity not to celebrate transgenderism in the way that our culture demands that it be celebrated. I'm not advocating, I haven't seen the special, so I'm not advocating, I'm just saying this, that's the world we live in, right? The point is this, as we push the gospel into the world, the world is going to push back. And our temptation can be to, to, to respond with anger or to respond with this desire to be accepted by this world. And what we need to understand is, look, our call is not to be angry and to, and to hate individual people. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. And our call isn't to be accepted by these kingdom. Our call is to take the gospel into these dark places and see people be reconciled to Christ. Here's a question I want to ask you as we think about this, this tactic that the enemy uses. Which kingdoms tempt you? What kingdom do you fear exile from? Is it a, a kingdom of a family or, or maybe it's a kingdom of some sort of sin that you've said, okay, I, I'm, I'm committed to this sin. I've pledged my allegiance to it. I'm my oath. I, I, I'm just the idea of losing the, the possibility of participating in this sin is, is repulsive to me. Or maybe it's, maybe it's some other club, a social group, whatever kingdom it is, what king, from which kingdom do you fear exile? my encouragement to you would be to ask yourself that question and say, okay, I'm going to submit to Christ as my Lord and King. First Peter 3, Peter says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them and don't be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Understand this, believers. You and I are taking the gospel into a hostile world, and the world is going to push back. The world and spiritual forces are going to push back. And what do we do? We give an answer for the hope that's within us with gentleness and respect, desiring that God would, inter- would intervene in people's hearts in a dark world and allow them to become worshipers of Christ. So as people say terrible things about us, they look, they look foolish because those things are obviously not true of us. And then my other encouragement to you is we, we think about this in terms of application. So first, submit to Christ as Lord in your heart. Submit to Christ as King. 
over all other kingdoms, my second encouragement to you is to this. Go into the dark places. Go into the dark places. Don't retreat. Paul had an amazing thing. We're going to see this in, later in the chapter. He had a Roman citizenship. He could get into some pretty amazing places. I was talking with, with someone before church, a dear friend, and we were talking about, um, we're talking about the, the beauty of Bethany Community Church and how grateful we are for this church. And he kind of joked, he said, you know, man, if we, if we take this church and plant it in a, you know, a, uh, some sort of magical land like Texas or something, how great, maybe I'll move there. I'm like, yeah, maybe. It's not a bad idea, you know, from Texas, love Texas. But I said, how many more Christians do you think God needs in Texas? I don't know. There's a lot there. <laughs> maybe. You and I have American citizenship. Do you know how many places you can get into with an American citizenship? You can get into some pretty dark places with an American citizenship. And maybe God is calling us, by his grace, to go into some dark places with the gospel and, and start Bethany Community Churches, you know, smaller, whatever, but, but uh, as, as the gospel begins to take root in, in dark places. But, but maybe God is calling some of you to go into some, some very hard places. Maybe he's calling some of you to Hawaii. That's possible too. But maybe he's calling some of you, in, which might be spiritually dark, but God's calling you to some dark places. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's submit to Christ as king because all other kingdoms are going to pass away. I want to be loyal to, to Christ as my king. Third thing, we're going to talk about this more in the weeks ahead, but the third tactic the enemy uses is to harass the gospel's witnesses. To harass the gospel's witnesses. Now, there, there's physical opposition. The crowds join in in verse 22. The, the words that these masters of this poor young woman have spoken, have proven effective. They're, they're fearful. There's this national or uh, this, this political fervor of, of opposition against these Jews who are threatening their customs. And the magistrates get involved. And these magistrates would have been uh, those, they, they carry like these wooden rods that symbolize their authority. And they take these symbols of authority and they, they have people beat them with these, with these physical rods. And after many blows, they're thrown into the prison. The, and the jailer is told to keep them safe, and he fastens their, wheat, their feet in these stocks. And we're going to come back to Paul and Silas there in prison next week. But what's the tactic here? What's the tactic here? It's not that hard to see, right? In one way, it's, it's kind of the opposite of the previous tactic. The previous tactic is to kind of tempt us with the, the beautiful things that this kingdom offers. This tactic is to deprive us of the things that this world can offer, to, to threaten opposition of, of the physical kind. There's physical harm because we're Christians. And we see the enemy using this tactic in the world today as well, don't we? We have ten to 12,000, it's estimated, brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan right now who, who are in danger, their very lives are in danger. According to some reports, people are going from house to house to try to find Christians. Christians are, are in hiding, having to turn off cell phones so they can't be killed. We pray for their faithfulness, but we also pray for our own faithfulness as we think about the threat of physical types of opposition. As we live in a culture in which Christians are going to be seen as immoral for our beliefs, what do we do? We recognize that there's going to be a price to pay in your business, in your school, in your family relationships. 
We want to be faithful as the enemy uses these tactics. Something else I want you to notice here. Notice it mentions Paul and Silas. Who else is with Paul and Silas? Timothy and Luke. Now, Timothy and Luke are more Gentile than Paul and Silas, and for whatever reason, they're excluded from this, from this moment of persecution. But, but that's also a tactic that the enemy uses. Sometimes the physical opposition that the enemy is going to, to face, cause us to be faced with is not opposition to ourselves, but against people that we love. What are we going to do when we see our children suffer physically for their faith? The threats may be on others. The opposition, the physical opposition of the enemy is a sign of the danger you and I pose to the spiritual forces of darkness. So what do we do? We endure. We endure. We realize that the harassment that we face can only be temporary. It can't be ultimate. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, what are you? He says, You're blessed because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Don't suffer for those reasons. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify in God. Let him glorify God in that name. There are many tactics. These are just three. There are many tactics that the enemy is going to use to oppose us as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that you can be saved from your sins, not through your own works, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As we proclaim the message that Jesus is not just a God among many other gods, but he is the God. He's Lord and he's Savior. And by placing our faith in him, we can receive eternal life. As we proclaim that, that gospel message, we are aware that there are going to be forces that push back against us. We're aware, but we're not afraid. It's not theoretical. It's already happened. We're not dismissive of it. But our confidence in its defeat is not on the basis of our own strength. The demonic realm, working in conjunction with our flesh, will be defeated, but not by us, but the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom I would encourage each of us to trust in this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our gospel message as it's proclaimed. We recognize that we proclaim your name not in our own strength, but in the strength of the power of your Spirit. We pray for those, those dark places that you have, have placed us, families or, or friends or bad situations at, at work or in communities where you are not loved, where communities where there's a love of material things instead of you. We, we pray that as you place us in those, those positions and those places that your spirit would go before us and you would do a mighty work. We recognize as we proclaim the name of your son Jesus that your name will be glorified. We pray for us to see that and rejoice in that. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.